off this world helicopters and Tatooine sunsets. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Mars Perseverance rover launched last week carrying a stowaway, a tiny helicopter named Ingenuity. If it works, it will be the first helicopter on another world, and engineers and scientists are eagerly awaiting the results of the test flight, calling it Mars's Wright Brothers moment. Ingenuity might be the first, but it certainly won't be the last. Work is underway on another off-planet helicopter named Dragonfly, with a plan to send it to Saturn's moon Titan in 2027. So why helicopters, and what challenges must engineers overcome to fly on another world? We'll speak with Mike Kinzel, an assistant professor in UCF's Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, who's working on the Dragonfly vehicle. Then, a space-based telescope has discovered a planet orbiting two suns. They're called circumbinary planets, and if we were on the surface, we'd see a sunset similar to the fictional home of Luke Skywalker on Tatooine. Our panel of expert scientists explain the physics of two-star systems and why they're more common in the universe than we might expect. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at some of the space news stories making headlines. Two NASA astronauts are back on Earth after spending two months on the International Space Station. It was the first time NASA astronauts flew on a commercially designed and launched spacecraft. It took 19 hours for astronaut Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley to make the trip from the station to Splashdown in the Gulf of Mexico. The two-month mission was a critical test of SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, designed to ferry NASA astronauts to the ISS, ending a nearly decade-long reliance on the Russian space agency for rides to the station. Astronaut Bob Behnken. There's something special about having that capability to launch and and bring your own astronauts home. And uh, uh, we went through a lot of years without that capability. And I think we're both super, super proud to have been just a small part of the team that uh, accomplished bringing those space flights back to the Florida coast. SpaceX CEO and chief engineer Elon Musk was at the Johnson Space Center to welcome the two back home. This day heralds a new age of space exploration. That's what it's all about. Work now begins on reviewing the data ahead of the next SpaceX crew launch. Three NASA astronauts and a Japanese astronaut are slated to launch on a Crew Dragon from Kennedy Space Center later this year. Stay up to date with the latest space news. Visit our website at wmfe.org space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Helicopters are taking over the solar system. Well, maybe not just yet, but engineers are looking at designing spacecraft other than rovers to explore other worlds. NASA's latest Mars rover is carrying a tiny helicopter named Ingenuity to the surface of Mars, and people like Mike Kinzel are working on another chopper named Dragonfly heading to Saturn's moon Titan. He's an assistant professor in UCF's Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering and joins us to talk about the challenges of flying a Mars chopper and what he hopes to learn for his mission. I'm pretty excited to see how the, the, the helicopter flies in the context of the low-density atmosphere out in, in, in Mars. That's one of the big challenges uh, is the, the atmosphere is so, so light and it's, uh, the sound speed is so low. It really is challenging for, for flight on that, um, in that particular atmosphere. 
So, so the ability to fly there is is really exciting because of those specific challenges. And it's this is a milestone mission, right? This this will be the first kind of helicopter design to actually fly on another world, right? Yes, yes, and of course that's just a, a feat of itself. We've had flight in the context of um, entry and landing and so forth, and, and but but in the context of uh, aerodynamic flight. With, uh, in the context of a helicopter, yes, it'll be the first. You mentioned kind of these challenges um, with Ingenuity and how you're going to be looking to see how it's able to overcome these challenges. You mentioned kind of the atmosphere. Um, how difficult was it to design um, Ingenuity, taking in all of these factors and all of these challenges about you know flight on another world? Kind of walk me through the hurdles that engineers uh, would have to go through uh, to get this mission to be a success. So just to be clear, I wasn't involved in its design, but my understanding of some of the challenges that they have are are very different than what we have on, on land. Um, they have to worry about keeping things warm during nighttime, but at the same time, cooling things down in operation. So one of the things that's instead of, you, you think of fuel limiting flight time in the context of Earth, for them, it's actually overheating because they have so much insulation that 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 it, things will start overheating if they fly too long. Other challenges that they have is the sound speed on Mars is so low that um, their their hill their their blades are actually operating at very high Mach numbers. So the the, the speed with respect to the sound speed is much higher than what we would anticipate in the context of Earth. So that is one of the limit, the main limiting um, aerodynamic aspects in the context of, uh, of Mars. You mentioned the term sound speed. What, what does that mean? So the sound speed is how fast um, a sound wave moves through a medium. So for example, you see lightning and you know it takes one, one second for the thunder to travel 343 meters. So when you right. count the second, it gives you the distance. That's That's... That corresponds to the sound speed. Gotcha. And, and what does that have to do with flight? Essentially, back in the days of Chuck Yeager, that was the main hurdle of limiting flight speed, right? It was, it was always, how do we get to a supersonic flight? Flat, flight beyond the seat or faster than the speed of sound. Um, so, so, so when you start traveling at, or when you're traveling lower than the speed of sound, your acoustic waves, your the waves... Pressure waves move the fluid around for you, but once you hit Mach one or the speed of sound, your 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 vehicle doesn't propagate information ahead of the vehicle, and you get these this buildup of waves that lead to very erratic flight character as well as very high drag or very high power requirement. Huh, that's fascinating. I did not know that. That's really cool. It, it seems like it is a challenge, so it will be really exciting to see um, if Ingenuity is able to to fly on Mars when it lands there sometime next year. Um, but another kind of helicopter mission that you are working on is Dragonfly, and it's heading to Saturn's moon Titan. Uh, tell me a little bit about this vehicle. So, so this vehicle, rather than um, Ingenuity, is more of a reconnaissance vehicle and, uh, and so forth. This vehicle is the lander itself. It is, it is a essentially a mobile lab that moves around 
It has things like drills and sensors and, 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 and it's evaluating the whole object flies and evaluates Titan and, and, and it's in, in, essentially investigating Titan for all, all the same things that you think of uh, the Mars rovers as investigating in terms of Mars. Um, some of the nice things about one of the nice things about Titan is the gravity is very low. Um, the the density of the atmosphere is very high. Those two features make it very favorable to flight. The other thing that makes it favorable to flight is the Mach number or the I mean the sound speed is very high. So we don't have all these same challenges that the the ingenuity has. Gotcha. Um, but obviously, we we don't have those conditions here on Earth for you to test out a vehicle before you try to fly it, right? You, we can't really modify gravity and, and the atmosphere too well here, or, or can we? Um, I guess my question is, how do you kind of test this thing? How do, you, how do you plan to design something that's going to these conditions that we've never really flown in before? Um, I think... I think... One, we, so we do have some test vehicles in the context of Earth, and we're building up a whole test campaign to give us the, the highest confidence in its ability to fly when we get to Titan, you know, all on Earth. But the other thing that we have in our toolbox is um, basically computational tools, tools that could, that, that, that better simulate um, some of the differences. So, so you can think of using, uh, so this is kind of the part that I'm involved in is using high fidelity computational simulations that model the aerodynamics in the context of Earth. And these things model all the, the details to the very local level. And then we could take these computational models and put them in the context of Titan's atmospheric conditions, gravity, and these sorts of things, and, and, and have come up with essentially high-end test beds that can extrapolate you know, on Earth and, and what we could build experiments on Earth and extrapolate them to, the to Titan conditions. I, I, I think another thing we have going for us is that the, the overall flight characteristic of, of Titan is, is it's, it's very suitable to flight. I mean, gravity is like one-sixth that of Earth. So basically it takes six times longer for things to fall in, in, in a very loose sense. It's a, it, um, and at the same time, it, it's very thick. It, 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 the, the atmosphere is very thick. So, so it's easy to push around the air and, and, and enabling you for flight. Gotcha. So, I mean, where are you all at with the development of this vehicle? Um, I guess we should start with, you know, when is the target launch date and, and how close are you to getting, uh, to getting it built? So the, the target launch date is somewhere in um, 2027. Um, that is kind of the, the, the around when the windows open. Um, right now we're in the early, we're in the second, we're, we're in actually a phase B where we are looking at um, ex we, we, we actually have had some slight changes in the context of getting a larger aeroshell. So places to put, to store this vehicle in as it's flying through space. And because of that, we're, we're rearranging and looking at various configurations so we could have essentially the optimal design for, you know, in 
for having the longest range. So how far can we fly this vehicle for every given flight event? Um, being able to store all the different components. The components are, are really focused or really oriented around um, what are the science, it's scientific mission, like sensors. Uh, and, and then the last aspect that we have to, that, that we're considering is how do we ensure that we can get the best flight performance? So, so, so you always have, to, when the vehicle flies, you have to worry about one, if it flies, and two, does it stably fly? So by stability, I mean, if you, you can think of a bad paper airplane and if it's designed poorly, the thing just, it basically goes unstable, starts going into some sort of, you know, a roll and falls straight to the ground. So this is what we're making sure that, you know, if you have a good paper airplane, the thing flies nice and straight and level. That, that, that's kind of the last thing we have to worry about. Gotcha. Now, I know you're an engineer and you're working on the engineering side of these, this, but I'm wondering if you can answer, um, you know, a, a scientific question. And, and what's on Titan that is so interesting to, to scientists? Why, why are we going there? I'm not going to say I'm the best person to ask for this, but, um, you know, my, part of my understanding is that it has, it has potential, a, a different potential for, for, for life. In, in these sorts of questions, right? The other, um, yeah, yeah, this is a uh, this is definitely something that the scientists, the, the planetary, <laughs> they just told you to build a helicopter and you did it, right? <laughs> exactly right. Yes, and it's really fun because all the different, all the things you, 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 you know, you don't have like gravity is very different there. Heat conditions are diff- very different <laughs> there. You know, the the, the temperature is you know, on the order of, oh, I don't know, a hundred Kelvin. So like negative, uh, I don't know, 200 degrees Fahrenheit kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's very cool, very different at very different things that you have to worry about. This is what I love about, about, um, working on this vehicle. Yeah. I've got to imagine it's, it, it it's gotta be like, you know, stepping into a video game where like physics is different, right? There's different gravity. There's, there's different conditions. Um, you know, you're not designing something that has ever been designed before. That's going to be pretty groundbreaking and exciting as an engineer, right? Exactly. It is. It is. I mean, I've, I've worked on different vehicles, but most of them have been um, in the context of marine vehicles, like, like first of a kind um, vehicles for, for military. So, so it's kind of cool to, to, to instead work on, a first of a kind vehicle for for space exploration. Thinking back to ingenuity now on on Mars, uh, is there anything that your team is going to be looking at or or taking away from this mission? You know, if if things go well, are are you talking to folks who are working on on ingenuity and, and kind of using best practices in Dragonfly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we are talking to some of the people who, de- some of the designers, um, and uh, they're. I, I think one of the things is is these vehicles. They're 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 one. They're partly the same and partly different, right? I, I guess some of the the similarities that it has is we're both using coaxial rotors, so that means that the helicopter rotors spin in counter-rotating directions. It, it basically 
prevents the vehicle from going into a from spinning as the rudder spins. Um, that and 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 we we are working with um, some of the designers and some of the the engineers at at, at some of the at the subcontractors that built that designed it as well as NASA in understanding some of the tools and 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 going through some of the safety practices. Um, some of the differences are, though, is that their challenges are much different than ours. Um, again, it it is it's almost like uh, some of the differences are 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 is are the same as if you're you know designing a a marine vehicle versus designing an aircraft. It, it, it's that different in in the complexity, and it all boils down to that that subsonic or or that 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 high speed um that high mach number flow that that um ingenuity has to work with versus we're in a very we we are not having to worry about that it's again we're very favorable to flight conditions so 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 because of that we don't have to communicate too much um i i would say probably some of the more important things that we have to worry about are vibrations so so if you think about a helicopter on earth what you see are these little tabs at the back of them that are used to um, basically ensure that your helicopter is not making it, it. It helps alleviate vibrations. Um, that and being able to do this in something that you can't touch after it's been flying in through space for a while, long long time period. I think some of the stuff on that we we could certainly find useful information on. You know, did they have a problem? And, and if it worked, can we use the same mechanisms? Um, if not, can we come up with different mechanisms to improve or alleviate the potential for? Um, and finally, Mike, um, you know, with Ingenuity and and then Dragonfly launching um, in a few years, how do you envision um, these helicopters being used in in future planetary science and exploration campaigns? Like, what's the future of helicopter exploration on on other worlds? Well, I, I, another, it all depends on how favorable it is, right? I think it opens up our eyes beyond something like just ground vehicles in, in terms of space exploration. Um, it, it's pretty cool. One of the other future possibilities for Titan is to actually send a submarine there because they have these very large methane seas. Do they send a, a a submersible vehicle down there? That that might be one avenue it opens up our eyes to. Right? It, it's not just helicopters; it's things beyond ground vehicles. We've been speaking with Mike Kinzel. He's an assistant professor in UCF's Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Mike, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you, Brandon. Still to come: a double sunset might not be in a galaxy too far, far away. Are we there yet? Is back in a minute. listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. A space-based telescope has discovered a planet orbiting two stars. They're called circumbinary planets, and if we were on the surface, we'd see a sunset similar to the fictional home of Luke Skywalker on Tatooine. 
Our listener Clara Sklenarova wants to know more about these planets and whether or not they might support life. So we'll put the topic to our expert panel of scientists, UCF's Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Jim kicks off the conversation explaining what circumbinary planets actually are. It's just a uh, planet that orbits more than one star, right? So uh, this is the kind of a first direct discovery of a planet that orbits two stars, which is a more complicated thing to do. It's a lot easier to orbit one star than it is to orbit two, but here we go. Well, yeah, and it's, I mean, the, the <laughs> important thing is that those two stars are together. I mean, it's not like it's orbits one star and then I'll take a jaunt over to some other star and orbit that one right. for a while. It's orbiting right. two stars at the same time. It's in a, it's in a system of binary stars, uh, as most stars are. Uh, our star being solo is a little bit unusual. Um, and as Jim said, dynamically, that becomes really complicated because the two stars push and pull on the planet in different ways, and it, it can tend to make the orbit be unstable. Mm-hmm. That's, that's surprising to me. So a solo star system is not common? Well, they're not exactly uncommon. It's not entirely yeah. uncommon, but yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's something like half of the stars you see when you look up the night sky are actually binary star systems. Uh, so that means something like two thirds or so of the stars that exist are in, in binary pairs or sometimes even more three or four. Like the, um, the, the double sunset on Tatooine, correct? Exactly. Well, there's a kind of two yeah. easy ways to have a planet in a binary star system, dynamically speaking, at least one is if the two stars are very close to each other and the planet is far away from those two stars so you're going around those two stars, and from a great distance, they're kind of close together. So it's kind of like, gravitationally speaking, you're orbiting one. Or the two stars are very far apart, and they're orbiting each other, and the planet is close in to one of those stars. Um, if you're doing something where the distance between the stars and the planets is comparable, then you get very complicated orbits. Well... TESS, um, which is a, a, a space-based satellite that's looking for uh, exoplanets, uncovered circumbinary planet um, during one of its discovery missions. Um, this is kind of a big deal, right? It is, because since the dynamics are complicated, it's not entirely clear what the planet formation would be like in a binary star system. Uh, would the early stages of planet formation proceed in the usual way that they do around a, a solitary star. So uh, seeing that planets are actually forming around these systems, since they're quite common, uh, that's, that's a pretty exciting confirmation and uh, goes a long way to showing that planets are indeed quite common in the galaxy. And one of the things about it, too, is that it's actually really hard to find a planet in a system like this. So, right, we think about how hard it is to find planets around a single star. So you're either looking for maybe like a dip in the star's light, or you're looking for a slightly different wobble of the planet itself. Um, and so with tests, like they were looking at this data and it said there were two, they, you can tell that there are two stars there. Um, and so those stars like eclipse each other in the orbits and, and they change the brightness of the light. Um, and so when they were looking at this, they were like, okay, well, there's something else going on here. Um, and then they thought it was maybe 
the, the stars doing something strange, but then they decided, oh, it's probably a planet. And, um, and I think it was actually the, the student who was looking at this was an intern and a high school student at the time. So, um, and he's in college now, but it's pretty exciting uh, to be able to look at data like this when you're that young too. Jim, I'm just wondering, you know, how common do we think the circumbinary planets are? We, we know these binary star systems are, are quite common, but can we make some some guesses as to how many planets would be orbiting these systems? We can make guesses, but we're not entirely sure. This is one reason why this uh, discovery is kind of cool. I mean, like Josh has said, that the, you know the, the binary stars are extremely common in the universe, and formation of planets around them is going to be a complicated business, right? Usually, planets form from a, a disk of material that sits around a, a newly formed star. But that disk can be severely disrupted if it's uh, in the environment of another star. And so it is a very big open question about how many of these uh, binary star systems actually do have planetary systems around them. Uh, I'm not even sure what I would say what we would expect. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, probably there are people smarter than me out there who, who do have solid expectations. But actually seeing you know a few of these is... Uh, is encouraging, and it means that you know probably planets are reasonably common around these things. But but like Addie said, they're they're extremely difficult to find because you see you see a dimming of a system like this. There could be a zillion reasons why. I mean, it's obviously the, the stars pass in front of each other, and the stars could be variable, and 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 there's all kinds of things that can go on. Finding planets is challenging. Our our listener Clara asks, um, you know, obviously Tess is looking for signs of, of planets that could be habitable, um, Earth-like planets. Uh, does the fact that this is a, a circumbinary planet or, or a planet within a, a, a um, you know, two-star system, does that change the, the prospects of, of finding signs of life or, or finding a planet that could harbor life? Does, does, does the fact that there are two stars in the system change anything? Well, I mean, the fact that we can find planets around an even greater variety of star systems sort of notionally increases the amount of planets you could find, so then increases our chances of finding life on a, a planet, right? So I think in that way, it increases our chances. Um, there's nothing like inherent about the two stars that would necessarily make it harder to have life. It, well, that would make it impossible to have life. But um, right, so our place in the solar system is a very specific place where we can have liquid water on the surface and where the temperature and lighting conditions are just right. Um, and we have water, right? So, so all those things need to happen as we know it to have to have life as we know it. Um, and so it's a little bit more challenging when you have two heat sources and maybe a, a strange orbit. Um, so so it's a, it can be challenging, but definitely not prohibitive. I mean, we've all seen Star Wars, so. And, and it would make for some really nice sunsets if we were to get there, right? Yeah, I think it would really mess, you'd have a very different circadian rhythm on those planets. This system is one in which the two stars are relatively close to each other, and the planet is orbiting that pair at a, at a significant distance. Um, so it is sort of like the tattooing sunsets I think you would see there. That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question like Clara, send it in. Our email is yet at wmfe.org. You can also interact with the show on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet Podcast. 
Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Stevie Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.